Richmond, um, if that's what we're hearing from. So this is good. Uh, great to have you with us. We're in the book of Joel. So find your Bibles and find Joel. Joel is just after Hosea. And uh, you will remember we uh, have just finished a series in Hosea. We're now into the book of Joel. If you're getting nervous thinking we are going to slowly kill ourselves by walking, walking through all of the minor prophets on the road, don't worry, we're not. But we are doing Joel. We just really sense that this is a very timely word for us as a church. We're going to be doing Matthew after this, which will lead us up into Christmas and then into the new year. So that's where we're going. Just if any of you are either extremely excited or extremely worried Um, That will help you both. Joel chapter 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Joel means Jehovah is God. And the word of the Lord came to Joel. What is interesting about that is Joel is really the only minor prophet who we don't know anything about him except that he had a dad called Pethuel. And with a lot of the other ones, they talk about the time when they were writing and we can work out whereabouts in the history of Israel it fitted and we can work out exactly uh, who they were around. So Joel doesn't give us that. And we have to ask an obvious question, you know, why is that? Why does it frustrate us or those of us who like those sort of details anyway? Why does that frustrate us that we can't work that out? And probably the reason is this, that the book of Joel is in effect timeless. And it actually doesn't matter uh, where it fitted in throughout history. And we can come up with various deductions as to where it does fit. But at the end of the day, the point of Joel is not to try and work out where he was. The point of Joel is to listen to the word of the Lord. And, you know, that is the challenge for us today. It is to listen to the word of God. It is to have God's word come and touch us. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, the word of God has at least three functions. It has a whole bunch of others too, but three to talk about this morning briefly. God's word is a dividing word. I don't know if you noticed that, but in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Those things are two separate things. In other words, it's saying that the word of God is so sharp, it will get into your heart and it will separate out what is of God and what is not. If you're listening to the word of God, if you let the word of God come to you and you don't harden your heart, God will actually tell you and teach you what is of him and what is not. And we heard that from Elliot when he started reading God's word. He realized, he said, you know, the obvious sins were there, but it gets better than that. It starts to get down to the very soul and spirit to say what is of God, what is pleasing to him and what is not. Are you listening to the word of God? The word of God is a dividing word. The word of God is also a saving word. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8 to 11, it says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. What is the word of faith? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You know, this morning in the first services, Sarah was just praying, giving thanks to God. There was a a young guy who believed in God. And he knelt down here at the front, and and as he was there, uh, belief exploded, as it were, in his heart, and he confessed with his mouth. 
And he prayed and he asked Jesus Christ to come into his life as his Lord and Savior. Isn't that fantastic? Hallelujah. And here is this man saying, I believe and I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's why week by week we lead us as a church through the sinner's prayer. We want people to be clear on the gospel and we want to give people an opportunity to say, I am now confessing with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. God's word is a saving word. God's word is also an equipping word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it tells us this, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Effectively, that's live the right way. Here's make sure you don't live the wrong way. Here's helping you, if you were living the wrong way, to live the right way. And here's how now how to keep practicing living the right way. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to know how to live right Get the word of God into your heart. You want to know how to live well in a society where we see social structures becoming increasingly secular? Get the word of God into your heart. You want to know how to live in a society which is losing its morality? Really, we have a religion, of a hedonistic religion in our, in our nation which is captivating the heart of so many people. In other words, people think, I will live for myself. I will live for my own pleasure. I will do whatever I want. And sadly, we're seeing that more and more and more creeping into the church. You know, we need to be having the word of God in our lives, in our heart, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness so that we might live according to the will of God. This is the word of God. This is the word of God that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. It is the dividing word. It is the saving word. It is the equipping word. And Joel stands up in front of the nation and he says, Hear this, you elders, verse 2 of Joel chapter 1. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Joel is saying, guys, you've got to stop for a minute. Something so significant has happened in our nation. Something so significant has happened that old people, you can't, you won't be able to remember something as significant as this. And young people, you're going to be telling this to your children and they will be telling it to their children because it is so significant. This is a defining moment in the history of our nation. What was it? Verse 4 tells us what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. There was this devastating locust plague. Like it never happened before. So much so that this event could not be erased by time. How bad was it? We don't know, but we know that in 1917, 1915, sorry, there was a devastating plague of locusts that covered what is modern day Israel and Syria. And that locust infestation, the first swarms came in in March in clouds so thick that they blocked out the sun. The female locusts immediately began to lay eggs a hundred at a time and witnesses said that within one square meter there were as many as 65,000 eggs. And in a few weeks those eggs began to hatch and the young locusts represented ants and they couldn't fly yet they would hop along and as they marched along at a rate of about four to six hundred feet a day they would devour every speck of vegetation on the way. 
And after two more stages of molting, they became adults who could fly, and the devastation continued. Nothing like this had ever happened before, says Joel. And in the agricultural economy of Judah, this would be disastrous. This would be utter devastation. Nothing would be left. And so Joel is writing to a nation who had suffered a locust plague. And he stands up in front of the nation. He says, we've got to stop. We need to think about this for a moment. You see, nation of Israel, locusts were a sign. They were a warning shot across the bowels of the nation. They were a message that something was seriously amiss. And if we go back to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, we discover exactly what that was. You see, Moses, when he was writing uh, Deuteronomy, it was his, the last book that he, he wrote, and it was just before he was dying. It was really his swan song. And he wrote a message to the people of Israel and to say to them, listen, here is how you are to live when God blesses you and brings you into the land. Here is what it means to live as a follower of God. And by the way, if you do, you will be blessed. But if you don't, you will be cursed. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, he says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and will overtake you. And if you take the time to read through that chapter, you'll discover in 28, verse 38, it says this, You'll sow much seed in the field, but you'll harvest little because locusts will devour it. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you'll not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You'll have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You'll have sons and daughters, but you'll not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all of your trees and the crops of your land. If you take the time to read this chapter, you'll discover that locusts were the messengers. And then invading nations were the messengers. And finally, God himself would come and would bring the nation to its knees so that they would repent and turn back to their God. And Joel is saying, listen, here's the first message. Are you taking heed? Are you listening to what is happening? Wake up, he says in verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips just when you were going to enjoy that next bottle, that next glass, that next bunch of grapes. The locusts came and they stole it from you. A nation has invaded my land, powerful without number. It has teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It's laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. This is utter devastation. Mourns says Joel, like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. The virgin is not yet married. And there she is thinking all of the good things are going to come and it's like it's been stolen from her. Mourn the dream, not even the reality. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. You see, all that they could bring to the Lord in thanksgiving offerings, they couldn't anymore. They, their worship was gone. 
They couldn't bring God anything. The harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. God is saying, I can't sober you up by speaking. I'll send the locust to destroy what's making you drunk. They were drinking what they were producing. They were enjoying all they were making. They were worshipping what they were creating, which led to a people insensitive to the word of the Lord and incapable of worshipping him. They were so caught up with their life. They were so caught up with all the things that they thought were good, that they thought were important, that they had lost the word of the Lord. They had lost the ability to worship God. Everything was about me. And they were drunk with their own self-importance. And the locust comes and takes it away and their joy disappeared. You know, their joy in their own stuff. But you know, true joy is found in worshipping the Lord alone. You see, it's what you and I were created for. And some of you, I, I hear you say or think to yourself, ah, oh, this, this worship thing, I... I don't really enjoy it that much, or I don't get too much out of it. And might I suggest to you that some of us find it difficult to worship. Some of us don't enjoy worship because we don't do it. See, we have this ability to direct our appetites. I, how many of you have this incredible craving and hunger for processed sugar? Yeah, let me just say things like chocolates. Um, yeah, now there's little jet airplane lollies. Yeah, there we go. All right. Dave, who was here last week, yeah, Dave Heitman, who's, who's now up in Tauranga, he used to have. I'm going to confess something to you. He used to have a jar that big of jet airplane lollies always in his office. I loved his office. And I will confess to you freely, it had nothing to do with Dave or anything in his office except that jar. And whenever he and I used to meet, I'd say, oh, well, let's meet in your office. And I'd just sit there, I'd just keep eating the jar. And, and then one day, I, then one day Dave left. He left me. And, and, and I all of a sudden came to this horrible realization that when I went to work, there was a lack of jet airplane lollies. And that was fine except for the fact when it came to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I really needed a meeting with Dave and my body was crying out for sugar, they weren't there. And so I then realized that, well, you know, what one wants to do is actually eat healthy so you don't want to eat jet airplanes, which is processed sugar. You want to eat natural sugars, things like apples and, and all those good things, you know, pears. And so I would eat one of those, and it would be fine, but it just wouldn't do what a jet airplane would do. And so I would find myself eating an apple and, and thinking, well, maybe that'll get me through to dinner, but it just didn't have the same effect. So, so I, I have to find some other way of, of satisfying my desire. But nobody else was buying jet airplanes in the office. It was a disaster. And you know what happens after a while? is that if you begin to train your appetite, you actually begin to enjoy the good stuff. And you begin to enjoy the apple, and you find then when you do come back and you eat a jet airplane, actually, you know what? After the first 20, this really isn't as nice as what I thought it was. <laughs> and they become sickly. 
You know, some of us have trained ourselves to worship when it's all about me. And, and if, if I'm not feeling good or if it's not about me, then, then that actually, um, you know, we have a sense of distaste. But if our worship has been captivated in love for Jesus Christ and all his glory and all the character and the might and the majesty of who he is, and when we begin to train ourselves to forget about ourselves and to focus on him and to worship him, in the end that becomes an unquenchable desire and we worship in spirit and in truth. Are you worshipping? These people weren't. And changing takes time. And it's interesting, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when we are focusing on ourselves and we're drunk with the stuff that our own life wants to give, It leads to debauchery. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we encourage one another, we speak to one another, and we sing and make music in our heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, being filled with the Spirit means that we impact others for Christ and we worship Him. Are we filled with the Spirit? Do we know what it is to be someone who has joy in God and God alone? Don't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, isn't it, that the result of being filled with the Spirit was to speak to one another in godly ways and worship the Lord. So the question right now is this, what is making you spiritually insensitive? What in your life is in the way of you hearing and obeying God? In what ways are you drunk with yourself? which is stopping you and stealing from you worshipping God and living for him. Verse 13, there's a call to repentance. If this is our situation, if this is where we're at, if we are all about ourselves and not about God, and maybe there has been some form of locust infestation which has gone across your life, Maybe there's been some form of devastation. Maybe something has happened which is like a spiritual shot across the bowels. It's a sense of there's something going on where it's like you've, you've got to step up and, and pay attention. And, and sometimes in churches we get a little nervous saying that, don't we? When something bad happens, we're all graced. We say, well, look, uh, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. And if it did happen, then there must be, you know, it, it's just some terrible thing. You know, sometimes it is actually possible that God is saying to you, wake up. There's something going on in your life. There is something seriously amiss. You've got to sit up and you've got to pay attention and you've got to ask what it is. Sometimes that is the case. And so what's the response? A call to repentance, verse 13. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. You've lost the ability to worship. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the lands to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. What is the day of the Lord? Because Joel is all about the day of the Lord. We'll discover this as we keep going through it over the next couple of weeks. But we see 
the day of the Lord mentioned specifically in four passages in the next couple of chapters. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, it says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor will ever come in the ages to pass. We see it again in chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, and chapter 3, verse 12 through to 16. This terrible day of the Lord. Are you encouraged yet? Here is this day of the Lord. It's the day when the Lord will bring to an end man's rebellion against him. It's the time when God is going to bring to an end the day of man. That is the day of self. You know, that happens currently when you and I individually surrender our life to Jesus Christ. It brings to an end my day of me and turns my life into the day of him. But the day of the Lord is not a single day. It's a period of time in the future. And in its fullness, it will come. Currently, it's in part where God is literally saving us person by person. But in this day to come, it will literally be when God will move heaven and earth to bring all things back under his lordship. In the day of the Lord, we'll see things such as the regathering of Israel, the rapture, the great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, to to give you a, a, a pictorial summary of it, here is what it potentially looks like on a timeline you see right there on the left hand, no, right, yeah, left hand side of the cross. We're in the middle, we're in the church age at the moment. You come to the end of the church age and there is the time when the day of the Lord starts from the tribulations to the millennial reign to the new heavens and new earth. Is where God is saying currently we are in an age of grace. But a day will come when people, when he will say, now I need to show you the outworking of your rebellion against me. And so we have this period known as the tribulation where God will literally let all restraint be withheld. And it will be a period of darkness. In a period of torment, where people will undergo the logical consequence of what is happening on the world today. Now, whether that starts, first of all, with us, the logical consequence of humanity's sin, then you have demonic consequence, and then you go to the point where all of creation will groan, and there'll be earthquakes and famines and wars, and you can read about that in Revelation. I'll put a bunch of verses for you to actually look at in your life groups. You have the rapture of the church, you have the battle of Armageddon, of everybody coming together where satanically they say, well, we can kill God. You have the millennial reign, the thousand year reign where God will come in all his power and all his glory. You have the great white throne judgment where people will stand before God and if their name is not found written in the book of life, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So my question for you right here, right now is, are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You see, the decisions you make in this life, the decision you make regarding God now will determine where you spend eternity. If you decide that 
You do not want to know Christ. You do not want to know God. You want to reject him who is the creator of all and holds all things together by the word of his power. If you decide you don't want to know him, he will respect your decision. But you need to know that that will mean that one day you will stand before him and he will say, I never knew you. And you will spend eternity in the lake of fire which was never prepared for you. Or you come to a place you say, I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you will spend eternity with him. Do you know him? Yeah, God has gone to huge lengths through the prophets and through the pain of life and through his word to tell us about a coming day, to call us to be ready, to be prepared to live in the shadow of his return. The Lord has gone to so much trouble to make sure that we know without a shadow of a doubt The fact that if we're walking with him, we're blessed. If we're walking away from him, there's judgment coming. And you know, no one can say that God never warns his people. I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, our parliament would would meet tomorrow and and they would have this bright idea. And uh, they would decide that on Thursday at 9 o'clock in the morning, they're going to change the open road speed limit from 100 kilometres an hour to 75 kilometres an hour. And they decide as a, as a parliament that they're not going to tell anybody about this. And they're just simply going to uh, line up at 9 o'clock on Thursday morning, every possible law enforcement officer, and uh, they will position them all around the country. And uh, they'll ensure that every single officer has a very, 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 very thick pad of ticketing materials. And so they start stopping people. And you can imagine the first person who would get there and that person would be pulled over and say, what did I do wrong, officer? He said, you're breaking the speed limit. No, I'm not. I'm doing 100. No, no, no. The speed limit is 75. Here is a ticket for a 25-kilometer-an-hour fence. What was their response to that be? It's grossly unfair. It's completely unjust. It is not right because there was no way we knew. And yet you imagine that same parliament, if they woke up tomorrow morning and they said, we're going to change it on Thursday to 75 kilometers an hour. And right now we are going to go, we have got advertisements over the next four days in every newspaper. We have bought advertisements in every magazine that people read. We'll put it on on many websites as we possibly can. On every road in the country, there is going to be a sign which will say, on Thursday morning at 9 o'clock, the speed limit changes from 100 kilometers an hour to 75 kilometers kilometers an hour. There is nowhere that people can go that we will not put up a sign. Now he comes to Thursday morning at 9 o'clock and somebody sails down the road at 100 kilometers an hour and they get stopped by a traffic officer. Who is at fault? The person might disagree with them. They might say, well I don't think that's right. I think we should still be doing 100 kilometers an hour. But they have no excuse to say, I didn't know. You can never say, God doesn't warn us. You can never get to the point to say, God has not told us what is going to happen. There is more in the Bible, in the Old Testament, about the second coming of Jesus than there is about the first. We celebrate his coming the first time when he came to Bethlehem as a baby. And for every prophecy there is on his first coming, there is eight on his second There are so many more prophecies in the Bible for us to get to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again and we read it and if we ignore it, we ignore it at our own peril. Jesus is coming again. In Joel 
stands up and he says, listen, we've had a locust infestation like you have never seen. Listen carefully. That is a shot across the bowels. Are you prepared to listen to what God is saying to you? Are you prepared to, in your heart, examine your life and say, Lord, what is it that is offensive in me? What is it that is not pleasing to you? What is it about the way that I conduct my life and my worship to you? Am I living all about me or am I living all about you? What is it maybe, Lord, or Jesus or God, maybe I'm not even saved? Maybe today I don't actually know you as my Lord and Savior. What's the shot across the bowels in your life? What's the word of God in your life today? If you hear his voice, do not harden his heart. Oh, so much so that we would actually hear his word and not harden our hearts and therefore not have to go through a locust plague. What's the response? We see it there in chapter 1, verse 14, declare a fast. What's a fast? Well, fast is, actually a fast tends to go slow. I don't know if you've you ever fasted, right? You know, like not eating food, right? I, I do that every now and then. And I find that when I have a fast, time goes slow. And it's particularly around lunchtime and dinner time and breakfast time. Just like time expands. But a fast is about giving something up. Why? You give it up because getting right with God is so important that even that isn't important. I am so focused right now on getting right with God, I'm going to forget about those other things. And maybe a fast is food. Maybe a fast is, get this, Facebook. Maybe you could fast from Facebook or you could fast from some other technical thing which is um, eating up so much of your time and we spend all of our time doing that instead of seeking God. Maybe that would be a thing to fast. And let's consecrate a fast. Let's make getting right with God so important that even eating or Facebooking isn't important. Let's call a sacred assembly. Call for God's people to come together and to repent. Let's gather the elders, the leaders of the people, make a special point of being part of repentance. I want to tell you that the last elders meeting we had, we were lamenting the fact that over the past couple of months, we just didn't feel that the people, that spiritually people were responding maybe as much as they should. And we might say, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things we look at is how many people are being saved regularly. And see, we've, yeah, we've been, to be honest, we've been struggling with things like Christian Explore courses, and some of you may have been on them, and we started a couple, and they, they went and they ended up being more sort of one-on-one gatherings. And there was a whole bunch of things going on. We thought, man, what is it? And we put this question to the elders and we, as an eldership, we sat in the room upstairs and we looked at each other and you know what? The elders looked at each other and said this, I've got to confess to you that I haven't been praying as much as I had been in the past couple of months. And I want to repent of that right now and I want to get back to praying. And praying that God would move. And praying that the Holy Spirit would continue to minister in this church. I want you to know your elders were broken the other, the other night. We sat down and we said, God, we've got to come back to this. And I just had the joy before because Sam, our chairman, is up in Tauranga. He's on holiday at the moment and he sent me a text before the first service. He can't be there in Tauranga praying for the services. 
So at the end of the first service, I sent him a text back and said, Sam, we saw our salvation in the first service. Keep praying. See, God's at work. And so as an eldership, as a leadership, we come together around what God is wanting to do. And we come into the house of the Lord and we come together where we meet the Lord and we cry out to the Lord. You know, simply, a sacred assembly asks these questions. Lord, what do you want to say to me? I want to hear it. Well, Lord, what do you want to say to us? We need to hear it. My current life, my current situation, our current life, our current situation puts us in a place where we have high motivation to hear and to obey. And so that is what we're going to do. We want to give time right now to hear from God. We want to give time right now to listen to him. And maybe the question for you is this, what is stopping you from giving your life to Jesus Christ? What is it that is in the way from you coming to a place where you invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior? Maybe for you that's the question to ask. If you've never given your life to him before, that's the question. Maybe the question for you this morning is this. Lord, as you speak to me, as you look into my life, as you examine my heart, what is it that is offensive to you? What attitude, what thought, what action? What is it that may be offensive to you? What is the warning shot across the bowels? Maybe something's happened in your life and for some of you, you're sitting here and you know that and something's gone on and you've been trying to push it to one side because you have this nagging feeling that God's been trying to say something to you. I want to give you a moment to actually come before the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me. I need to listen. Right now, right here. Maybe for you, And pastorally, I just want to say this, that these are not black and white principles. If something bad has happened, that doesn't necessarily mean there is something bad going on in your life. But maybe for you, you need to be quiet and listen, and the Lord needs to speak to you. He needs to encourage you. He needs to give you that strength to keep going. So we're going to spend some time. In these next 15 minutes, we just want to allow the Lord to speak. And you'll notice that up the front, communion is here. And at some point when you're ready, come and take communion and just give thanks to Jesus. Maybe you would want someone to pray with you. And maybe there is something going on in your life. And so if you want to just come down the front and and just wait down the front here, then someone would come and would put their arm around you and say, let me pray for you. Maybe you want to grab the person next to you so that would you pray for me. You may have a strong sense of God leading you to speak. Maybe there's a scripture that God lays on your heart. Maybe there's something that you believe we as a group need to hear from the Lord. We're going to wait. And we're going to let the Lord speak.